Welcome to Turnpikers, the show about the people who make up the Denver and Boulder tech scene. We're your hosts, Luke Beatty and Danny Newman. Information about this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. All right, welcome to this episode of Turnpikers. And we have my friend, Noah Blue Sky Petard. And I would say that Noah to me is, um, as I was riding my bike over here, I was thinking that Noah is sort of like the Magic Johnson of the tech scene in the sense that he plays basically every position and has insight into uh, how to play uh, all of the different roles. He's an attorney for startups. He's got a fund. Uh, he mentors lots of startups. Uh, he treats his fund like a startup, and he uh, really is involved at sort of every level, and he's probably the most down-to-earth person in all of our ecosystem. So welcome, Noah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I, you've way overstated my uh, my qualifications. Yeah, well, I appreciate I'm, I'm generally pretty hyperbolic. But, but I appreciate it. Uh, everybody has to live up to that. So uh, other than that, biography, what would you like to, how would you like to define yourself so that folks can... I'm also tall. I'm also tall and uh, and and really good looking. You like and a ginger, big tall ginger. That's right. Yep. And uh, what else? Um, he likes fly fishing as well. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm training for uh, uh for the Leadville race this year. That's another kind of interesting thing. I still have no idea how I'm actually. That's a hundred miles, right? Yeah, that's good for you. Healthy. healthy. That's for when sure. health and fitness goes to not health and fitness. Right? I actually think it's pretty. Uh, my wife would. T- my wife would um, argue with me, but I actually think it's. Uh, like it feels like a pretty like normal sort of baseline of activity. Now that I've been at it for like six months, um, that the, the kind of joke is whether this is going to become you know this like annual thing that I do for the rest of my life or not. She's got her fingers crossed that it's not, and it's just just this one time. So we'll uh, see. One of my favorite stories. Uh, not not on that, not on the on the tech front. But one of my favorite stories is we. I grew up uh, in college with a guy who was really one of these people who was the first people that I knew. And and back when you know these ultra marathons were not really a thing, right? Back in the early '90s, and there was a very small group of people that used that would do those. And one of them was my my friend Chris Perkins. And uh, I don't know how they do it now or how they do other races, but. Basically, what what Chris decided was that he needed, and I think the, the the race required this in Vermont that you have a partner sort of run with you, pacers, cert, certainly for the last fifty miles or yeah. the last twenty five miles or whatever. So the casual part. Um, I had just had knee surgery, so I was sort of like manning the Volkswagen. But uh, so people sort of broke out and divided into running these different legs with. Uh, with our friend Chris, who's running this race. And it was the greatest thing I've ever seen, where these people are basically going out. And this was a person who's very prepared to run the race. So there wasn't a question of like, should he be doing this or could he be doing it? I mean, I guess you could ask if he should be doing it. But but anyway, you know, it got to be the wee hours of the morning the next day, and they're still running this race. And our friends are coming back, and they're like, you know, they just ran five miles with him, and they're like, "That was the that was the worst experience of my life," <laughs> because he's a s- complete psychopath, and he made it very clear to us that we should not let him stop, and not listen to him, because he would be delirious and all this sort of stuff. So we we're under these strict orders to do that, and he's already put down seventy five miles or whatever. So if we ruin it for him because we decide that he needs to stop or whatever, and he was basically 
you know, run, take 10 steps and then dashing into the woods and falling down and laying down. And, and then they're like having to like pick him up, put him back on his feet and, and under his instructions to, to keep making him run. At the same time, he's saying these horrible things like make me run or I can't feel my legs or my back hurts so bad I can't even move. But yet completely externalized the role of, you know, responsibility to his friends who ended up resenting him forever because... He then, you know, finally finished the race and then had all these back surgeries and all this sort of stuff and now retroactively holds all of his companion runners accountable. So whoever so your companion... Me excited about it. I know, this yeah. sounds awesome. I, I kind of want to join so you I, now. I, I, re I, I respect you, but I respect whoever your companion runners are or your pace runners probably more than anything because... If you lose your mind like my friend did, then it's just going to be their problem and not well, yours. Well, what, what's what's funny is that um, they're all like like concerned that okay, so they're going to pick up the race like fifty miles in, right? And they're all concerned like, am I going to be fast enough? Are you sure I'm going to be able to like keep up with you? And I'm like, dude, <laughs> I'll have been running for fifty miles. Okay, like as long as you can, you know, yeah. keep up a walk, I think we got this. Yeah, so. that's really impressive that you're doing. How long have you been training? How long is there a really kind of a known routine for that? Yeah, there is. There's, there's at this point, like, there's all sorts of programs out there, and they're all kind of basically the same. I mean, the, the key is just, like, um, you know, putting a lot of miles on over a prolonged period of time. I mean, No I kinda, way. Yeah. That, that's well, what they decided. Oh, that's a cool, cool idea. Not. Yeah, I mean. So you just run a lot of miles so that you can run, run a lot of miles. miles. Yeah, I, I, had, I was actually out, like, I had coffee with a bunch of different people around downtown today, and I, like, so in order to hit my 60 miles for the week, I just, like, ran. I ran from my house to the first coffee, then I sure. ran from that coffee to Galvanize, had coffee there, and then I ran back home. Do you drag, like, a tire around or something just to add? Uh, driving my fat ass around is uh, yeah. is, is, is close enough to a yeah. tire. Yeah, I'm going to introduce huge. you to a friend of mine I met in Argentina who, when I was on a fishing trip in Argentina, I met this woman, and she had just run across Argentina. She's run across. She's done the Saharan Ultra Marathon. She's done all sorts of these things and she's like a super well-known person and i know she makes an appearance at the leadville 100 zone or do she tour she's totally That's awesome cool. it's, it's um like I, at this point i just just like one day you know i'm just trying to put like one foot in front of the other like literally because the the training itself is so like difficult i mean every day i wake up and and i don't have you know some sort of knee injury or hip injury or whatever i'm extremely grateful so like just getting through the training will will be an amazing accomplishment i still have like, I, I have a coach, right? And I tell my coach, you know, every time I, I connect with him, I'm like, man, like, I know I'm doing all this training. I'm doing everything you're telling me to do. And, like, you're telling me I'm doing great. But, you know, I go out and I run 20 miles and it feels like a fucking long way. And, like, I got to do that five times in a row. Like, how, how do you actually do? I still have no idea how you actually do that. I mean, presumably it works because people do it and they finish. And he's finished and he's followed the same training routine. So, I don't know. Wear Google Glass and you could catch up on a lot of TV programs. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, you'd mentioned that you had a hard time catching all the TV shows you wanted. That's you could right. you could knock out a hundred hours of TV, while right? Hopefully not a hundred. I think I, I think I'd be limited to knocking out thirty, or they kick you off the uh, off the course. So wow. So first question I have for you is: uh, tell us about uh, how is how is it that your middle name is Blue Sky? Is that like hippie parents, or is that like a? What, it's, what is uh, that? Yeah, it's um. Well, first of all, it always is it, your, it is your middle it name. Is my, it's my middle name, yeah. And I have a sister whose middle name is Star, and a daughter whose middle name is Star, um, and another daughter whose middle name is Sky. And so we, it's kind of like this family thing to have sure. these sort of hippiest cool. names. But it's it's a combination of uh, 
of ch- having Cherokee Indian heritage um, and also having hippie parents. And so, as you can imagine, having been young once and suffered elementary school, right? Having, you know, the first name Noah and then the middle name Blue Sky. I mean, like, it was a frigging, like, disaster for, for many years. But I've, uh, I've come to accept it and, you know, like it. It's, it's now it's cool, right? Like, most things you get persecuted for when you're little are the things that make you cooler when you I get still older. remember being in the backyard with my dad and we're, like, doing some, like, project back there. Like, I don't know, like, cutting a limb off a tree or something like that. And I remember, like, like no shit. I mean, this is, like, one of those, like, way early memories. Like, I'm not even sure how I was able to even retain this memory. I was so young. But I remember asking my dad if, like, I could change my name to John because, like, Noah was, like attracting way too much attention and mm. we had a little discussion about that and it didn't end up going anywhere yeah um okay so you're still a practicing attorney yep and you're running a fund yep so tell us about those things in in no particular order yeah well they're really complementary i mean that's kind of the cool thing about doing both those things is that um 90 percent of of what I do in terms of kind of being out there in the world, interacting with people, having coffee with people, you know, lunch, et cetera, in the community, it's like, it's conducive and supportive of both activities, right? Like on the um, attorney side, I either, you know, I mean, generally speaking, this is like an oversimplification, but I'm either on the venture fund side of things, representing a venture fund that's like looking to make an investment in a company, or I'm on the company side of things, representing the company and helping them negotiate the terms of, of the deal. Um, and, uh, you know, guess what? Like, that's the same world that, you know, investors are, you know, play in, right? Like, I just kind of step, I kind of take off the attorney hat and I put on the, you know, the, the venture fund, you know, manager hat. And, and wow, I don't even have to, like, leave the room or talk to different people or, you know, I'm, you know, it's, it's really easy to do. They're like almost completely concentric circles. And so that's kind of how it's, you know, possible to do these two like significant things, like to have this like, you know, full real like practice at Cooley and then also, you know, preside over the the fund. But it also helps that the way our fund works, right? You know, we're co-investing with, um, with institutional venture funds who are, who are really doing all the work around diligence and structuring the deal, et cetera. We're just kind of sliding in, you know, drafting alongside them. Um, so it's, it's not, you know, there's a bunch of different permutations of, of, you know, kind of fund management and ours is, ours has a lot of hassles and work associated with it, but, you know, spending a lot of time diligencing deals and negotiating the terms of those deals, um, and getting them to closing is not something that we have to do with our fund based on how it works. And, um, what is the premise of the fund? So it's called service provider capital. Yeah, right? I mean the the basic the basic premise of the fund. I mean it kind of it kind of depends on which audience you're talking talking to, right? I mean we have three basic audiences that you know for this fund, right? We have um, the companies that we invest in, we have the people who invest in our fund, and then we have the venture funds that we co-invest alongside, right? And the premise, or you know, the point of it, or you know, why it makes sense or why you should be enthusiastic about it kind of depends on which, um, you know, which, which group you're, you're in. But I mean, maybe I should step back and kind of talk just for a second about what the fund actually does. So it's called service provider capital. The idea um, with service provider is that like a service providers are, you know, just for example, lawyers, bankers, accountants, contract CFOs, uh, recruiters, tax professionals, you name it, right? It's, it's, it's everybody that, that, sort of if you imagine like the process of like growing a startup company is kind of like a you know it's like a one of those like 
in Indy 500 races and, you know, like periodically the car will stop and people will come out and like add gas and tighten the wheels and stuff like that. I mean, like the service providers, all the people who come out and do that and then the car, you know, starts driving and, you know, maybe it wins, maybe it doesn't. Um, and uh, so basically the whole idea for this fund was hatched out of being at one of these like boondoggles for service providers. I think it was uh, Venture Capital in the Rockies, which is no longer kind of held in the same format anymore. But Toward the end, it was an awful lot of service providers, not a ton of companies. And, you know, you'd be up at Beaver Creek or Vale or whatever in a big, like, uh, ballroom. I did that. I also did that. Did you do that? Yeah. Full yeah. of service providers. Yeah. Yeah. Questionable value, right? But, but, but it kind of, you know, again, depends on what you're trying to get out of it. You know, you could, you can go up there and be disappointed by the fact that you're not coming away with like 10 new clients, or you can go up there and, you know, really be enthusiastic about the fact that you got to like hang out and form, you know, better relationships with the people that you work alongside in the industry. You know, and my partner Jody, I should mention, um, who's who's over at uh, Square One. Um, we'd been kicking around different ideas for a long time. We're both entrepreneurial, and we had you know looked at a bunch of different stuff. And uh, you know, one of the things that struck us up at VCIR was like, you know, here we are with all these other service providers, right? We're you know everybody's an accredited investor, which basically means you're you know you have enough. Uh, financial resources that the government deems you to be, you know, able to invest in stuff without having to have a lot of disclosure and protections extended to you. So you got all these people who are accredited investors, right? You know, these service providers, they all are experts in venture capital, right? I mean, they, they work for these companies, they understand how they work, they know what a corporation is, that they have boards of directors and stock and stuff like that. And so, you don't have to get up and diagram all that stuff out on a whiteboard. They come to the table sort of educated and savvy about venture capital. And then collectively, they have shitloads of uh, relationships, right? They know all the companies. They know all the By investors. the way, if you swear like one more time, just, just for context, Tons. we have to put explicit Sorry. on, on – but it's too late. I mean, most of them end up going that way. But once Sorry. we get to like three shits, which that gets us now to the third shit, we're basically going explicit. So just, just for context. Well, actually, it adds a little bit of allure to this particular episode. Yeah, it right? makes it so it's harder to submit them through the, through the, well, through the review process. Sorry. I'm gonna, I'll turn it down from here. Um, or turn it way, way up. Yeah, yeah, way, or just, we we actually, actually now that we're at three, we might as well just really start cussing like sailors because we should get everything we can out of it. Go ahead. Get so, the hell going. So anyway, so, you know, back to, back to the setup, right? So we're, we're up there at, at VCIR. You know, we're noticing that you have tons of people in the service provider community who are, um, they are accredited investors, meaning they've, they have resources, right, that are sort of, they, they can invest that on a discretionary basis. It doesn't, everything doesn't go into a 401k plan, right? They're looking around at different opportunities. They have uh, sophistication about venture capital and they have great relationships. And so, you know, one of the like ironies that struck us is it's kind of interesting that this community, right, that's so like um, integral to, you know, to supporting, making possible, like, you know, the whole like startup phenomenon and venture capital in any community is like at the same time completely marooned from any kind of real opportunities to rationally participate in venture capital, right? You don't as a, you know, uh, you know, you could be a great lawyer or, you know, contract CFO, like somebody who's, who name everybody knows who's super helpful, like I mean, just a pillar of the community. And guess what? Like Sequoia's, you know, fund 15 is not going to be inviting you to participate as an LP. It's just not happening, right? So, you're not getting um, fund opportunities, right, to invest in a venture fund, generally speaking. And you're also not really, like, there's not a lot of great, like, you know, I say rational, like, sensible opportunities to invest directly, right? Like, maybe there are some ethical prohibitions on you doing it. 
you know, like let's remember too, most of these service providers, right, they're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week just doing whatever it is that they do. So you don't have a lot of time to be out, you know, kind of cultivating deal flow. You might be exposed to the, the deals and companies you happen to, to be working on, but that's not, you know, that's a narrow like subset of the, the overall. And it may not necessarily, because you think they would be good clients, yeah, they may necessarily be able to pay mean bills, they're good investors. Right, exactly. And then, okay, let's just say that, you know, you do actually have really great deal flow. How are you going to, do you have the time to actually diligence these, um, you know, these opportunities from a, like, is it a good investment perspective? And then, by the way, if you want to like have any company, you know, t- take you seriously from, a, from the perspective of like talking to you about possibly investing, you need to be able to write a decent sized check, right? And, um, you know, maybe at least probably $25,000, right? Which is, which for your average service provider, they may be an accredited investor, but that's still like r- real money Individually. to them, right? Yeah. And so then, then you talk about like, okay, well, like, let's say I was going to invest in venture capital and let's say I had good deal flow and let's say I had a, you know, a solid ability to identify the, the winners, right? I'm going to be wrong, you know, a lot, but I'm, but I'm going to be pretty decent. How big would my portfolio need to be in order for it to make, you know, kind of for me to be approaching this rationally and have, you know, aggregate sort of success doing this? You probably have to invest in 20, 30 or more companies, right? And so you start to do the math on that. It's like $25,000 times 30. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, that's a lot more money than any of these, um, you know, service providers, you know, individually typically has. So to circle back to my high level conclusion, like these guys are way eligible in theory to invest in venture capital, but there's not really a way to do it. And so the first kind of way that Jody and I came at this, um, you know, this phenomenon was like, hey, somebody should create a product for this consumer, right? Like here's a consumer with a need, and somebody should build a product for them. And so we thought, well, what if we start a venture fund that is, you know, tailored to this community as an investor? And that was an interesting idea, right? Nobody's ever done it, you know, for a variety of reasons, not because it's like, you know, this most like amazing idea ever, but it's just not been done before, at least in the way we've done it. But that kind of led us to the second light bulb, which was much more interesting, which was, hey, if you actually got all of the key people who are service providers in the community, you got them into the fund, right? Then in theory, you know, if you've got all the people who are involved in doing all the deals in a particular community, then you should have like amazing visibility into what deals are happening and you should have the ability to tap the various investors that you have in your fund to you make introductions so that you can actually you know have access to these deals. So the idea, became, which is what you'd be doing anyway, right? Because you're helping out the company, right? Right, exactly. And so the so the concept became, hey, if we go out, so like let's create a product for this community, and in the process of creating a product for this community, the mere fact that we've created that product will itself lead to the opportunity that this fund has that no other fund really has, which is to, you know, have a good shot at getting into a very high percentage of all of the institutionally backed Series A deals in the Rocky Mountain region. And that's what we've set out to do. I think, um, let's see, as of you know, today, we've, we've been operational uh, about a year and a quarter. We've done around 30 deals. Um, so it's, it's, we're ahead of plan from that perspective. I think from a percentage um, perspective, like you know, if you look at what percentage of eligible deals did we get into, we're somewhere around 90%. So it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's going pretty well. Um, you know, so that's kind, of a, that's kind of the overview of what the fund does. Are your LPs exclusively that group of service providers or yeah that's a great question um the answer is no right so we've probably got so 
for regulatory reasons, you kind of ha- you have to limit your fund to 100 investors. Beyond 100 investors, and you start to go into like this mutual fund territory where all of a sudden it's like going public, and it's wildly impossible and unattractive to you know be a mutual fund. So we don't want to be a mutual fund. We, so we got to have we got to have fewer than 100 investors. So in our fund, we basically have in, the, in this first fund, and we just I was telling Luke before we got started that we just launched a second fund in Chicago, same premise, but focused on um, the, the Midwest, you know, kind of or, like adjacent to Illinois, immediately adjacent to Illinois. You can obviously define the Midwest to be this like massive area. Um, but with, uh, with, with our fund here, we have about, I would say 40 or 50, it's probably 50 LPs that are service providers, right? It's, it's a high concentration of lawyers. We've got a bunch of, uh, of contract CFOs. The lawyers and the contract CFOs, by the way, are the, like generally speaking, the most like dialed in folks because, you know, you can't, it, let me put it differently. It's difficult to set yourself up to successfully raise a Series A financing without some sophisticated help around, you know, kind of building your business model, making a plan, you know, that's coherent and attractive to, you know, to a, to a, uh, a VC fund. So an awful lot of these companies that are going out to raise Series A financing are working, you know, on a consulting basis with somebody who's an expert in helping people make a plan and package it up, packaging it up for, you know, for review by, um, by VC. Um, the lawyers, obviously, you know, at least today and maybe in five years, will have fully automated everything that lawyers do. But at least today, you still have to have a human lawyer involved to get a venture deal done. So those are probably the, you know, the, the most dialed in groups we have. But we also have uh, gotten a ton of leads from our uh, real estate LPs. We've got uh, recruiter LPs that have that have um, that have been doing great. We've got accountant LPs. We've got um, and we've got some of everybody. And then the balance of the fund is um, it's a combination of you know kind of the usual suspects that you know who are active as angel investors in the community. We've got some um, we've got some partners in venture funds that you know well who have, are personally invested in the fund. And then we've got a fair amount of um, you know active uh, entrepreneurs like CEOs, CFOs, founder types who are investors in the fund. So it's a it's a really nice cross section of um, of our community, and we expect it to be about the same in Chicago as well. Is there a model? I think I asked you this once before. Is there a model whereby service providers could run their own fund in exchange? Instead of a, an entrepreneur seeking out these service providers, which they need all or some of it at any level, at some level, at, at any point in their lifespan, instead of in, engaging with them and, and paying them an hourly rate or or whatever, is there is there a model by which the entrepreneur could give out equity to these people and, and pay nothing to them? Is that legal? Yeah, that's totally, it. May not be legal it, it, for the it's, it's to totally, do it for your for your council representation, but for certainly for these other people. And I've always wondered why startups don't say, if I'm a PR person, that would be a, an ideal situation. I don't really take any cash from these people, but I get equity. I, if I work with them for a year or whatever, two years, I get a point and I work with 10 companies. I would basically run my own service provider capital fund by myself. Yeah. I think you see a fair amount of that, but you know, like we're all old enough to remember what it was like living through the like late 90s and you know early 2000s there were a bunch of um 
a bunch of folks on the service provider side who had that same epiphany back then who thought, gee, wouldn't it be awesome if instead of like, you know, taking cash for our services, we took stock. And for some of them, um, for some of them, for some period, that worked out really well. The one I remember on the legal side was was a, a firm called Venture Law Group out in um, uh, out in the Bay Area that had some some of the individual partners there had some really great successes doing that. But I think that you know when when the world imploded, uh, y- you know I think that uh, an awful lot of folks kind of went back to the to the basics and said you know this is great, but you know most of these aren't going to be winners and ultimately we need to be able to pay rent and pay salaries and do stuff like that. So most of the firms out there, at least on the legal side, are back to just, you know, just working for cash. And we occasionally will take um will take stock, but it's not something that we're like aggressively pursuing. And we as we at Cooley have, you know, a dedicated like Cooley fund that makes investments in, you know, in, in either in uh, client companies or alongside our client um, venture funds. But in terms of like really as a firm trying to satisfy, um, you know, serve our, our fees with uh, with equity, it's not something that we're aggressively pursuing. I mean, we really think the cash model works great. You made the race car reference earlier. So in addition to providing cash uh, to these uh, these companies, are you guys allocating a certain amount of resources or how does that yeah, actually so, work? So actually, so that's a really good question, right? A lot of people that we talk to that, that, aren't familiar with us, they, you know, and especially on the company side, their concern is like, hey, wait a minute, like if we take cash from you, are you going to all of a sudden be like foisting your service providers on us? And like, is there some sort of a catch where if we take your money, we all of a sudden have to work with like, like we are adamantly like aggressively anti that. This is a, a real fund where, where we happen to have some incredibly like helpful, sophisticated, you know, well-networked folks involved on the investor side. As soon as side. you close, 100 of the 100 investors just start cold calling the that shit out of you. That does not happen. We would Okay, you're in the fund. Yeah. I'd like to offer you some office space. Over... We would be we yeah, you would be ejected very quickly yeah. from our fund if you started doing that. It's very important that we provide, you know, only the help that our portfolio companies want from us, right? We, we do have a sit down, you know, either before or sometime after we actually invest where it's like a Probably very- Probably really hard for them to not do that, it's I a bet. Bi- <laughs> well, they, but they also understand, right? They're super excited about being involved. They're, I mean, they're, they're really excited to like, you know, to be out there and, and, you know, just imagine, right? You're out there as a service provider and up until today, all you've had to talk about at these like stupid networking events is, you know, accounting or, or you know, like- Audits. Uh, Yes, it's terrible, right? Or or the law, right? It's like nobody wants to talk about that stuff. I was in line at um in uh, where was it Dulles, like flying back on Sunday, and I ran into a guy who's a a, a prominent investor in our community, and uh, he and I started talking, and he's like, "So how's it going?" And I I said, "So do you want to know about the law stuff or the fun stuff?" He's like, "Oh, I don't care about the law stuff. Like, tell me about the fun. Like, how's it going?" I mean. That's what people want to talk about. People want to talk about companies and business and investing, and they don't want to talk about you know accounting or finance or you know or or the law or four hundred nine A or like you know two eighty G or like eighty three B election. Like that's not interesting. So our LPs, um, you know, and, and I talked a little bit a, a while ago about the idea that there's like the, the different groups, right? Whether you're talking about our in, the investors in our fund or our portfolio companies or the or the venture funds. They each get something different out of involvement with us, and and on the on the LP side, 
our service provider LPs love the fact that like now they're able to actually invest. They've got, you know, skin in the game in these in these deals that, you know, that they're hearing about in their own neighborhood. They're super excited about that. And they love to uh you know, they love to talk about it when they're out, you know, in the community. And and I've heard some just like heartwarming tales of, for instance, some of our uh, real estate LPs, you know, being out talking to companies and like, you know, really like promoting the fund to the companies like, hey, you should really talk to these guys. They're great. There's, you know, it's like, you know, they're awesome value add funds. It's, it's really cool. So we have a really enthusiastic bunch of, uh, of investors. So let's talk about the, the boring legal side. Not any of Let's those things it. that you mentioned. Those don't sound particularly interesting to me. But uh, talk to us about, so you work at a Silicon Valley firm that has you out here. Are there, how many Cooley people are out here? Five? Well, oh, gosh, no. We have a we have a, a, a pretty big office, actually. I would say that that in terms of attorneys, and I should know this. But um, it's for, that are working on this on this world. So in the, it, yes, who are like down in the weeds doing this sort of, startup you know, world. startup world stuff. There's probably, um, you know, it kind of depends on whether you bring in like some of the specialty groups. But I would say, I say there are 20 that okay. are, that are pretty like, you know, fundamentally involved with startup companies. And what is the, when you think about one of the, one of the things that we talk about on this uh, Well Listened To podcast is other people's perception of the Denver and Boulder community. And I'm sure you work with, obviously work with lots of people in the Valley and in New York and other places. What is the, what is the, what is the outsider's perspective when you get back with partners and talk about this community? And what, 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 is, it, what is it that they, they want to talk about? What do they find interesting, not interesting, compelling, growing, not growing? What is what is that? Because that's always a good perspective, other people's well, perspective. Well, I'll come around to answering that question more directly. Maybe I'll come at it from a different angle at first and tell you that in the process of expanding our fund concept into other markets, and I won't identify, and we've, we're, we're having conversations in a bunch of different markets right now. Um, you know, you're, you're constantly comparing, like, what's it like to, you know, interact with the community back here in, in Boulder and Denver versus, you know, the community and wherever. And, you know, there are communities out there that are, there's actually, like, from a statistical perspective, there's lots of interesting deals happening, right? They're, like, they're interesting companies from the, pers- or, or uh, uh, communities from the perspective of, like, venture activity. But they're so, like, far behind in terms of, you know, kind of getting the whole, like, I hate it because it's kind of a cliche thing to say, but the whole, whole, like, give before you get, you know, collaborative mentality. There's, like, there a lot of these communities, again, that are very, like, attractive places to be from an investor perspective are very territorial and um, and guarded. And, you know, when you, you talk to some people who their analog here in Boulder would, you know, they would sit down and have a conversation and be try to be helpful to you know virtually anybody who was like in good faith looking for you know input from them and in some of these other communities these same people they just wouldn't even have that conversation unless they had like come to an arrangement ahead of time over you know how many options were they going to get or were they going to get cash or whatever and it's just like that's what i'm sort of struck by when i when i get outside of bolt like not outside of Boulder into, you know, New York or Boston or DC or San Francisco or Palo Alto, but, but outside of Boulder in these other, you know, sort of second order, um, you know, startup communities. It's not as mature from a, 
sort I mean, of ass- interactive standpoint as far as how people yeah, communicate I mean, with one like another? Yeah, I mean, there's one ideal, right, like like for a startup community, right? And that you, it does presuppose that that's, there's like a proper path and a proper way. Rules of engagement. Yeah, but, but they feel behind on the rules of engagement. It's like people don't quite believe that if they're, you know, super generous with their their time and expertise that it's going to come back to them. And, and, and I've always thought this whole like give before you get thing, man, even if you were like not even kind of a generous person, you can absolutely, you know, justify living by that rule of thumb, you know, on a purely like selfish basis. It works out really well. Yeah. I, you know, I happen to really like this stuff and like talking about this stuff. So is that unique to this area? I mean, are you seeing that in in any of the other big well, I think, uh, ecosystems, um, I mean, or is you know, that kind being of our... totally candid? Like, I don't purport to be like an expert. Like, yeah. I did spend some time in San Francisco, so I've, you know, and I've continued to be you know a member of the California Bar and to do some work out there. But I don't, you know, I spend most of my time here. I mean, my expertise is like, you know, is with this community and how this community behaves. It strikes me that you know, from from the little visibility that I still have, for instance, into like, you know, how things work in the Bay Area, that, you know, those communities are big enough that there's just not the same level of like intimacy and accountability. Like this is a, this is a real like, you know, community where we have like, you know, real stuff happening, but it's still a small community that's intimate where we're all kind of close enough together that, you know, I, I guess I'd say that it feels harder here to be like a bad actor and not have it come back around to bite you. But I feel like in other, you know, kind of bigger communities like sure. San Francisco or Palo Alto or whatever, you could really be kind of a scoundrel and still, you know, have a viable, you know, practice doing whatever it is you do. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a really incredibly insightful point because I feel like that is also a double-edged sword totally. around here too because when you talk to somebody around here, it's sort of like, Teamwork makes the dream work, you know, and like everybody knows everybody. But just when you start doing that, you realize this person must think that this is small town USA because it's like every person they mention, everybody already knows and uh, they've already worked for that person. So they're a great reference. And then but I think sometimes the net result is the people going back to New York or San Francisco and be like, yeah. They all knew each other. They've all worked together on three different things and they're all, you know, which, which I think often provides a lot of consolation and a lot of schmuck insurance in some ways, because you have this sort of checks and balances that you talked about, but you also have this sort of like, but it's gotta be really, really small because I didn't find anybody in that town that didn't know Noah. Yeah. Okay. So, so totally right. (laughs) And so maybe that, so, but, but. But then it's like, okay, so what if everybody knows each other, right? As long as this community is continuing to like, you know, to to produce like good well, yeah, companies, I mean, then well, that's all that matters. Yeah. But but you end up with this sort of like mutual admiration, pedantic society of people who just are are supporting each other it, it, unless you get out. You know, and that's what I always tell people here. I'm always like, get out. Like, be here. I'm you know, obviously I, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm born and raised here. I wouldn't go anywhere else. You feel the same way. You feel the same way, but but you got to get out, right? You gotta you gotta be you gotta be in those other places, and you have to you know you can't exist solely here. Yeah, I think you're right. Right? There's a certain amount of like you know there are sort of you know there's there are particular strong personalities in the community who you know who have have strong opinions about kind of the way the world is, and I do think that it's a small enough community 
um, with a with a small enough, you know, with with a lot of concentration of influence in you know a relatively you know small number of people that I th I think there is some like uh, hesitance on the part of the like the less influential people to kind of like question you know various like party perspectives on things. I yep. do think that that happens here. Right. Well, because of what you're talking about, there there are influential people you know you could you could go tell half of the crew in on sand hill road to get lost and you're still gonna have plenty of and friends. you're still gonna have plenty yeah. of friends and plenty of funds yeah. and plenty of mentors and yeah. all that yeah that's, here, that's true here you you know you burn two bridges right. you've probably burned them all you know um but that's i think that's you know, this could be a, a corollary for any conversation in any industry, right? I'm sure if we were in the Small Business Bureau and we were in a small town, it'd be the same way. It would be hard to get a small business loan. It would be hard to hire service people. It would be hard to do all those sorts of things. I don't think it's, that's necessary. That's probably more of a thing that exists in smaller, smaller communities. Um, one thing we always ask people on the show is, what is the thing that Noah Blue Sky gets that you think that other people probably don't get? Sometimes that's a product, sometimes that's a lifestyle, sometimes that's a that's a thing. What is, what is something that you get that that other people don't get, and what is something that you seem to think that other people get that you that you don't really buy or get into? Man, those are those are tough questions. Um, and it can be it can be in the tech world, it can be parenting world, it can be whatever. But we always try to ask somebody that because they usually. Um, leads to yeah, I mean, I don't know. Thought. Like, what do I think I? What do I think I get? I mean, I think on the like, on the practicing law side, I think what I what I get that, and, and I won't say that I've cornered the market on this by a long shot, right? There are a lot of people who have um, who have similar perspectives, but I think it's a it's a strength of mine, and that is that I don't come at the um, you know the the practice of law or approach like the you know the the legal, you know, community as though it's like this like exalted, you know, profession, um, you know, where we all wear like powdered wigs and we're really important. Um, I think that that was one of the things that really, you know, kind of turned me off as like a junior, you know, person practicing law. It's just this like sense of importance, like, oh, I went to law school and I'm a lawyer and I'm so important now. And I, you know, look, I mean, I really, to be totally honest, I just, I don't think of myself as any different than somebody who went to like electrician school for a couple of years and got really good at being an electrician or being a plumber or whatever. I mean, I just have a skill set that's like comparable to any, any other skill set. And I think that, um, like, so what I feel like I get is that like, it's, dude, I'm just out there with a particular expertise, just like everybody else, but I'm not any better or more important than, than anyone else. And I, um, why is that important? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, um. It's been valuable to me because I think there's a lot of people on the client side that like interacting with normal people, right? Who don't take themselves too seriously and, you know, don't have too much respect for the law. I mean, I do think it's important to have. Some, now you're talking. To have. <laughs> now you're talking. I think it's important to have. Some, that really resonates with this kind of audience, by the way. <laughs> well, no, I mean, like it's look. The law, I'm using my, you know, air quotes right now, is is obviously important, right? Like we have to, like the law exists for reasons and compliance is important, et cetera. But I also think it's important to, um, you know, to, it's important that the lawyer also understands how to look at the law from an entrepreneurial perspective and not just, it's not just the, you know, kind of lawyer saying, well, we have to, you know, fit this, you know, we have to check each of these six boxes exactly the right you know, it can't just be, or it shouldn't just be the client pushing back against the lawyer saying, hey, well, can't we do this other thing? It's important to be, you know, to as a lawyer to be able to wear your entrepreneur hat and say, well, geez, like, 
let's say I have like, you know, $25,000 in the bank. I've got like three employees. I'm going to run out of cash in like 45 days and I'm trying to get this bridge financing closed. Like, okay, if that, if let's say that's my perspective, how good do these documents need to be? Like, do they need to be perfect or could they just be pretty good? Right. Yeah. And so, you know, like I'm always asking myself that, that those questions because like, you know, I was a, you know, small time entrepreneur before I went to law school. I'm a small time entrepreneur with my fund. And I'm, you know, I'm out trying to like get the most bang for the buck, you know, when I wear the entrepreneur hat myself. And so I get it. So I feel like that's something that, um, that I get right. Particularly well, and other people may get it too, but that's, yeah. that would be like a, that would be like a strength. What, what do I, um, what do I not get that other people Get What's a trend that people can get behind that pretty easily that you you don't seem to feel like you can really get behind? I don't know. So, well, look, I mean, here's the risk of like this is kind of a controversial thing for like a tech lawyer to say. I would say there's an awful lot of like technology that it, it enables, um, you know, interaction with devices, interaction with other people that's not, I think, terribly positive. Um, there was, a, I'll, I'll give you an example. I won't identify anything in, in particular, um, but there was a company that I, you know, that I interacted with a bit or in my earlier years that had, had some technology that on the one hand, it was kind of cool. It's like, Hey, it's like, you know, like kids learning technology. Basically it was there to allow a parent to hand a, you know, device to a child and have the child, like, you know, a young child and have that child spend a lot of time, like interacting with that device. Right. I.e. allowing the parent to like have a break and, you know, do some shit and the kid could just kind of sit there and like, you know, press buttons on the on the device. Sure. Uh, is I know there all about that. Is there actual educational value to some of that stuff? Yes. But is it like a wildly abused by by parents? Absolutely. So to me, I wasn't really a big fan of that because I kind of felt like with, you know, kids that that age that they should be like interacting with people. They should be, you know, inter interacting with, you know, with natural stuff, not like staring at some, you know, device in the corner, you know, completely absorbed. Um, so there's plenty of stuff like that, that I facilitate, you know, in finance on a, on a daily basis that I don't necessarily sure. think makes the world like a completely better place, but I think it's an inevitable part of what we call, you know, progress. And as much as I might not like certain of these um, things. There is, look, I'm not entitled to have the world stay exactly the way I want it to be. We're all kind of along for the ride here and what it means to be human and what it means to, how we define our relationships with our kids or our friends or our spouses or whatever. It's all changing. It is yeah. a dynamic thing. That's and, interesting. And uh, so anyway, so, so I would say that's, sometimes I don't get a lot of the stuff that I, Enable. That I enable. Yeah. I, I would imagine that as a service provider, and I've felt this way kind of when I've people have asked me to help certain companies, I, I usually find that it's it's hard to feel like you love the entrepreneur or the team of people that are doing it, whatever the definitions of the founders or founding team or whatever, the people, the entrepreneurs. The, it's, it's very rare that you would find an entrepreneur or a group of entrepreneurs, a team that you love and the product that they love. And I, people ask me sometimes like, what angel investments do you make? And I say, usually it's because I like both of those things because it's hard to find. I mean, and sometimes it's just because it's not interesting to me, you know? Uh, and sometimes it's because I just don't, like those people are not, 
I, I wouldn't say that. I'm not suggesting they're bad people. I'm saying they're not, they're not like great friends that I want to spend a ton more time with. So I think it is rare that probably as a service provider that you, that you would find both. Because yeah. I'm sure you also have the quandary. You hear about it all the time where it's like, I, I'm representing these people. I, I don't necessarily, well, I, I don't people. think they're unscrupulous. I would say this about that. Like I, I, this is a luxury that, that I have because I've, I've not made it a priority to have like the world's biggest practice. Like I've always made it a priority to have a practice that was big enough to allow me to operate autonomously within you know, within Cooley, that was, that was sort of my goal. And, you know, the older you get, the more you sort of like rearrange what your priorities are. I would say um, my number one priority with any client engagement is not, um, I, I'm thinking about the person. Like, is this somebody that I would potentially like to, that I could become friends with? I'm honestly thinking about that. Like, could I, could, could this person teach me something about fishing or climbing or running or is there is there like a relationship win here what can like, i get out of this person other than ex exorbitant hourly I mean, fees like, yes yeah, well is it gonna is it gonna make is it gonna make my life as a human being not as a professional or like like will it enrich that and when they're I, calling you you pick the, up that is the first yeah because i like them and i i can honestly tell you i do not have any clients that I don't actually like as people, that I wouldn't actually be psyched to go have dinner with or drinks with or whatever. And, and that means, of course, I've said no to a bunch of stuff, but like that's, that's been fantastic. I, I think by virtue of picking people that I'm attracted to you know, as people. The chances of up, liking their subject materials. Yeah, they're, they're generally involved in, you know, they may, look, they may be involved in developing some new app that has you know, kids more glued to their phones than I think they should be, but you know what? Like, I either need to get out of this industry entirely or accept that that's, yeah. you know, that's part of the deal. I'm not going to work with, you know, like tobacco companies or asbestos manufacturers or, you know, like people who are like doing evil. But I'll, I'll say that the way I come at it, which is like really focusing on do I want to form a personal relationship with this person, I usually end up in a good place from a product perspective. So Awesome. Anything else you want to share with us before we shut this thing down? How, how do how do people uh, get in touch with uh, with Noah Blue Sky? Noah at serviceprovidercapital.com or npitard at cooley.com, depending on uh, which of uh, the two hats I have you want sure. me to be wearing when we talk. Got it. That's awesome. It's great to have you on. You're one of my favorite people, and I appreciate you taking the, an hour of your time and Come on over. That was a quick Thank hour. You. Thanks for uh, thanks for shooting the shit. It was fun. Great. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to Turnpikers, recorded at Postmodern Company in downtown Denver. More information on this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. Reach out with questions and recommend future guests.